0: This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 15th of January 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London, and this is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Simon Brooke will join me to go through the newspaper front pages. Plus, we hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. In
1: full openness, I should confess that this week, I did have a glass of wine during a work meeting, and I'm really sorry about this, cheese sticks too.
0: You should be ashamed of yourself. (laughs) Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, rounds up what we've
2: learned this week. We learned this week quite a lot about the hair's breadth that, apparently, separates a work event from a party.
0: Well, we're going to have buns and coffee here, and uh, it's up to you whether you decide that that's work or a party. It's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to Simon Brook, who is a journalist and communications consultant. Simon, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Now, of course, the main story in the news today, as we've just been hearing, uh, is party gate. Yes. Um, So Allegra Stratton, who was the um, uh, Prime Minister's spokesperson, uh, resigned for laughing about a party that she in fact didn't go to. The Prime Minister himself did actually go to a party, as we now know, after he's denied it. Yet he's still in place. And many of the newspapers are speculating on this.
3: They are indeed. Yeah, it's it's interesting. She is the only person who seems to have fallen on her sword, doesn't she, and taken an honourable exit. Um, I think what's interesting is... um, the, the, the debate, I mean, uh, Camilla Cavendish, who used to work at Number 10, has a very interesting piece in The uh, the Times today, sort of talking about really from her former experience of being somebody who would have been in there. But presumably, because um, I, I would say anyway, because I always have great respect for what she has to say, you'd, you'd imagine she's the kind of person who would have not... Uh, uh, gone to that party. Um, but I think it's... It, she points out that um, really th- that anybody who's surprised by the whole party gate thing uh, shouldn't be because, as she says, it's, it illustrates the cavalier way in which Johnson has run his entire premiership. She gives examples of Oh, the, just stop, stop, sorry, sorry. sorry, sorry, sorry you've we have got to go stop because
0: we've got our own party <laughs> oh, supplies okay, just brilliant. coming in. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There's much. all thank our you. coffees and our and buns. And our wine and cheese and stuff. stuff. No exactly. wine and cheese. I mean, we are being respectful No <laughs> actual alcohol... But only because it's 9 o'clock. Exactly. In the
3: that comes, a bit, that comes um, after the programme. Oh, yeah. Look, um,
0: walnut bun for me. Thank wonderful. you to the Monocle Cafe. And if this wonderful. makes your mouth water, do pop along the there. smell is amazing. To yeah. Chilton <laughs> Street because the cafe is open all day. Lovely buns, great coffee. Carry on. Where were we with other people's Sorry. parties?
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So presumably, this is legitimate, isn't it? And of course, it's a, a business expense and things. But um, yeah, uh, I mean, I love the idea, by the way, of this invitation that Boris Johnson wasn't sure it was, he thought it was a work invitation, which ended bring your own booze. Am I really old and stuffy or is that not normally the kind of calendar invite you get? I don't know. And
0: I mean, as we've seen from other reporting on this, a member of staff was dispatched with a suitcase to the local supermarket to fill it up with fine wine.
3: It just, uh, and Radio 4 yesterday, of course, somebody, inevitably a journalist, sent off, uh, Paddy O'Connell, I think it was, sent off to try and see how easy it is to fill a suitcase with wine. This, it just is the gift that ge- keeps on giving, isn't it, for journalists. It is absolutely ridiculous. And I think if, if I put my communications hat on, if you want to see how to manage a crisis, this is the worst way to do it. You need to get the whole story out there quickly and immediately. Uh, nasty though it might be, um, but at least you've done it in one fell swoop and then you can move on but this just keeps dripping and dripping mm. And I, As yeah.
0: Cavendish says, the police are key to this now.
3: Really interesting I think, this is the point, exactly she makes the point that, you know, having worked in the place herself, she knows uh, I think as we all do, but she really spells it out, how closely involved the police are at Number 10 with every aspect of of life there. You know, there are loads of coppers. She even says that that they actually almost dictate what is served at the Downing Street Café, uh, uh, cafeteria, chips and, butty, uh, and, and chip butties and stuff like that, because, you know, they are so deeply sewn in, if you like, integral to the sort of Downing Street machine or whatever. So the idea that the police didn't know what was going on is just absolutely ludicrous. I mean, they, they must have looked out of the window and seen this thing happening. So I think this is really serious, isn't it? Because are we are we saying that literally people are working Downing Street, the prime minister, senior civil servants there are literally above the law that... Um, you know that they would be able to do something the rest of us can't now there is a, a, a rumor going around that one of the findings that might come out of sue gray's report the senior civil servant who's looking into this is that downing street is crown estate crown property and therefore is exempt as you know there are no licensing laws for instance at the mm-hmm. palace of westminster so there's a question that she might decide or discover that uh, because this is uh crown property crown estate it's therefore not subject to sort of lockdown but but to me, I would love to see some uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg perhaps Uh, some senior member of the government trying to spin that line on the news and see how that goes down.
0: I mean, the point is, yes, of course, they can probably find some kind of technicality to excuse this. But the whole country is watching and has seen how deeply unfair this is. And I mean, there's so much speculation about whether this is survivable for Johnson or not. It probably is, I think, is the consensus. But we come to May and the by-elections. If the Tories do really badly in that, I think it's the 20th of May, is Mm. it? Uh, Then I think that his, his, I mean, we know that the party uh, has, uh, at heart, no loyalty. They will support Johnson as long as he's an election winner. If he loses, or if his party loses at those crucial by-elections, I imagine he's out.
3: Yeah, I think it's, yeah, as you say, that the Tories are known for being ruthless about this. Now, there are procedures that have to, uh, that have to be followed in terms of a leadership election. 54 MPs, back, uh, Tory MPs, have to be willing to write to the chairman of the 1920s 52, that's 15% of the parliamentary party to say uh, that we have no confidence in the party leader and we want a, 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 an election. I think the question is actually, events might be overtaking that, really. I think it might be, it's, it's just interesting to look at, for instance, at the, the Spectator today, you know, very much a, at the heart of the Tory party, talking about uh, Gavin Williamson, um, who was disastrous, many would say, as education secretary. But what he is very good at is is running leadership election campaigns he worked for Theresa May he worked for Boris Johnson the first time around and and helped them get elected uh, there are rumors according to the the spectator and other publications he's already setting up an office uh, that looks like a campaign headquarters so for whom? well that's the question absolutely and then speculation Rishi Sunak Liz Truss Jeremy Hunt all those all those people Nadim Sahawi who it's speculated has had a pretty good run as education and then uh, uh, and previously uh, as minister for injections if you like uh, jabs (laughs) so he's he's had quite a good uh, and he's got a great personal story coming from Iraq to the UK not speaking a word of English but but uh, you know the sort of uh, wonderful story of personal development and pulling himself up by his bootstraps. So, I, think I mean, that's
0: lovely. But when you look at the people who are going to have to vote, these are members of the Tory party. It's not the general public. It's, what, 100,000 members or something. And I'm afraid to say that that bat squeak of racism is very much present.
3: Well, it's always a question, isn't it? I mean, I think their, their natural comfort candidate, if you like, would be Liz Truss. And, and, and a Conservative Home, for instance, which is the sort of in-house uh, magazine of the grassroots Tory party, has given her in their polls uh, quite a substantial lead, uh, Rishi Sunak a little bit behind her. Um, But the question that parties always have to face is, do we want to elect as leader the person we like or do we want to get uh, elect somebody we don't really like, but we know resonates with the public? Mm. So Tony Blair for Labour, and also we saw David Cameron, for instance. People would have gone after David Davis if it had just been left to the Tory party leadership, but, uh, sorry, membership. But um, they took the view, actually, well, let's choose somebody who is a little bit, has more electoral appeal. So it'll be interesting to see, as you say, how that particular demographic, 140, 100 150,000 uh, elderly people um, will, wh- whether they'll choose their own comfort candidate or whether they'll cast the, the net a bit li- uh, wider. But I do think it's interesting that it does seem to be, we're getting to the stage now where actually I think the pressure on Boris Johnson, whatever Sue Gray says, I mean, I cannot imagine a finding that She will come up with which will allow him convincingly to point to that and say, Okay, I'm exonerated, aren't I? It's fine. I mean, it's gone beyond that, hasn't it? Now, absolutely. And I think uh, certainly uh, reports from backbench MPs saying they've been inundated with emails, really angry emails from constituents. the people are gonna suppose are supposed to be uh, vote, uh sorry, electing them next time around. And I think the pressure now is I would say is coming to the stage where uh, you know it Boris Johnson is gonna to have to go. Um, mm-hmm. you know, whatever what what whatever Sue Gray finds.
0: And of course he's made it fine for all of us to have parties <laughs> at work so <laughs> I'm gonna have the I'm gonna have the walnut bun. Do you want the cinnamon? cinnamon. Or? Okay, cinnamon well be you lovely, choose it. Let's get this party started. <laughs> okay. Excuse us, because we're just having our own little work due here. As we'll you hand know. you over. <laughs> we'll hand you over to Andrew Tuck.
1: We're working on a big book project that will come out this spring. A Monocle Book of Photography and Reportage is a book that looks back at some of the great stories that have been shot for the magazine and it's been guided along by our art director Richard and also our director of photography Matt. There's still a way to go and no doubt a few tough decisions to be made but this week we got to the point where just about every page has been designed once. It's a juncture in a book project where we commandeer the canteen, lay printouts on the dining room tables and just walk through everything to see whether the order works, if key points and passions have been covered, if the mix of places makes sense. Also walking the are Joe, Molly and Amy from the book team. Many of the images to be featured have never made it into the magazine's published edits. Pictures from a city just before war crumpled it, shots taken in a failed nation, images captured behind the scenes at a gritty news channel. At the pace that any magazine works, it's hard to hold in your mind all the stories that you've covered. And on the cusp of our 15th anniversary, It was sobering and satisfying to see the work spread out across those canteen tables. When we began Monocle, the ambition was always to bring together words and pictures to tell stories. The idea was not just to use pictures to illustrate the words, but to even allow a photographer to deliver an almost parallel story, especially with the expos. A photographer would often work on their own, allowed to see things that the writer might not precisely cover in the text. Although, at other times, a writer and photographer would work as a very tight team, hold up together on epic journeys. It's an approach that has helped make Monocle a magazine known for still giving a photographer 16 pages, encouraging them to work on film, trusting their eye. And surveying all this work again also made me realise how some of these images have had a deep, almost subconscious impact on me. The soon to be crumpled city is Aleppo in Syria, a story shot back in 2009 by Roderick Eichinger, when the place was thriving and trying to be more open too. Here's an old-fashioned travel agency, there are waiters in bow ties hanging out on the roof of the Mirage Hotel, a cool young woman smoking in a cafe. What happened to all these people? What was to be their fate? As the Syrian war ravaged the city, just having seen these images made me feel some strange connection to the place. It's the power of photography to link viewer and subject, the seer and the scene, even though they will never meet in real life. On a side note, it's hard to imagine that almost two years ago, We were making books and magazines from our homes. We got through that time and did some amazing things. But it's so easy for nuance to be lost, for decision-making to become slow and fractious when you're not in the same room. It's why we've always wanted to have our team back together in our offices and bureau whenever the rules have allowed. But as Omicron fades in Europe, we hope, and people speak with growing confidence about life post-pandemic, Well, companies that went along with working from home across these two years, now trying to reconvene their teams, face many problems. Do they even want to get them back together? This week, I spoke with someone in a luxury brand who said that while most people wanted to come back to work in her division, she couldn't motivate her boss to come in. Another person told me that it was hard to imagine ever feeling their old team spirit again as their company had sold off half of its office space during the lockdowns and had now told staff that in the future they would have to show a very good reason if they wanted to come to the office. And I promise this is the last thing this week. I presume you know that the UK's Prime Minister is rightly in hot water for allowing parties to be held in the offices of 10 Downing Street at the height of that first lockdown. It is shameful, and another instance of Boris waving his privilege in people's faces. But some of the BBC's and Channel 4's news presenters have sounded like they were auditioning for a job on Saudi TV. Have you ever been to a work event where they serve alcohol? They huffily ask ministers. I understand there was a trestle table involved, one complained. Do you think it was acceptable for people to be eating Pringles when the rest of the country was only getting crisps? Well, that's what I thought they would ask next. The optics, the stupidity of our rulemakers, is enervating, but sanctimonious news anchors are also irritating. And so, in full openness, I should confess that this week I did have a glass of wine during a work meeting, and I'm really sorry about this, cheese sticks too. But there was no trestle table involved. That would have been very bad, and also very unmonical.
0: Cheese sticks a bit unmonocled too, to be fair. <laughs> I, I mean, I think we're talking <laughs> about high-end olives, really. You're but he, just, it, he doesn't want to sound too elitist. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Uh, let's go on to talk about Ukraine because doubtless we will return to Downing street yeah. parties a little bit later. Yeah. But of course, Ukraine is all over the front pages. Uh, we've been having these meetings uh, uh, about the future of Ukraine, in which in fact Ukraine was not involved between mm. Russia yeah. and the United States. Uh, now, this is a story that comes from the Times, and it's by and Anthony Lloyd, who is a superb absolutely, reporter. Absolutely,
3: absolutely. I mean, one of those people who who just goes where most people would not dare to go and puts his life at risk, probably on a weekly basis, mm. I would think, wouldn't he, to report and really speak to interesting people on the ground. Um, in this case, uh, he's doing a, a profile. He, he has a profile of somebody, Dimitru Cozioblo, uh who is uh, known as Da Vinci, um, and uh, he is uh, one of—he's um, uh, 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 actually been awarded by President Zelensky of uh, Ukraine the Hero of Ukraine uh, medal, which is which is the country's—you know—one of their highest, most prestigious uh, awards. He is certainly an unusual ca- a character who has a wolf in a cage next to him <laughs> with some bones in, uh, which is quite scary. Um, but as the paper, as anti Lloyd reports, he's one of a group of uh, right-wing nationalists that uh, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian government um, is now uh, is now being recruited uh, to defend Ukraine. Um, and I think uh, this shows really just how desperate the situation is for, for poor Ukraine. And I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of amused and slightly appalled this week obviously we're all looking at party gate and and uh, you know and suitcases full of booze going out of number 10 and it's shocking and uh, and it does say something very serious about the way we're governed but we might be heading into a third world war um interesting you know the, that that uh, the 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 polish um foreign minister has warned uh, this week that uh, Europe is closest to, to war as it's ever been for three decades or whatever. And as you say, that the talks uh, w- came to nothing between the US and Russia and it's widely reported in the media that um, that Russia really didn't want anything positive to come out of them. If anything, uh, they made a series, the, the Russian uh, negotiators made a series of, of really extreme demands uh, regarding NATO and the, and the position of Ukraine and other countries in that that sort of sphere as well, which they knew would be rejected uh, by the U.S. And then the idea is that that gives them a pretext for some kind of invasion. So, yeah, so Anthony Lloyd reporting on the, on the sort of desperate situation here in Ukraine where um, everybody is being recruited, whatever, perhaps their background or whatever, just to basically try and um, defend the country from uh, a Russian invasion, which does look terrifyingly increasingly likely.
0: Just tell us a little bit more about the wolf.
3: <laughs> well, the wolf is uh, but it's, it's a sort of pet wolf. You know how you have a pet dog, perhaps? I know, have but, a dog. Yeah, I've got a dog as well, but I <laughs> don't have a wolf. But anyway, this uh, slightly unusual character d- decides that he's uh, that uh, Dimitri has a has a pet wolf in a, in a cage um, with some bones next to him. And unfortunately, I have to say, somebody who's sort of worked in terms of developing people's image or something, rather naughtily, the Russian disinformation campaign has suggested that the wolf, the bones, all this thing, suggested that, um, that uh, Da de- Vinci, as he's known, his, his nom de guerre, um, is uh, going to sort of feed russian children to wolves or whatever so um there's a picture of him in the times you have a look with a rather impressive looking wolf i have to say um i don't think i'd want to get that close. but to he does say that wolf. the bones
0: in the cage are but, actually those of sheep and yeah cows. so don't so don't worry about
3: that that's all right but even then I, I have to say it's a bit bit spooky really i'd rather stick to opening a can of dog food and Disgusting that that might be better than, uh, Beth and the, yeah, exactly, sort of uh, wolves and, and bones and things, but unusual character, to say the least.
0: Let's go to Andrew Willow, who's opening up a can of, well, whatever went on this week.
2: We learned this week quite a lot about the hair's breadth that, apparently, separates a work event from a party. As UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson continued to assure the obdurate cohort of the certifiable who still believe him that the party he attended at 10 Downing Street in May 2020 was, in fact, a work event. And when I went into that garden just after six on the 20th of May, 2020, to thank groups of staff before going back into my office 25 minutes later, to continue working. I believed implicitly that this was a work event. We learned that at a time when many millions of British people had resorted to posting boring photos of bread to pass the lockdown days amidst the birthdays, weddings, holidays, and funerals they had forsworn in the name of protecting public health, number 10 was difficult to distinguish from Studio 54. An observation which we now realise is not altogether congruent with the soundtrack we have picked. know what you were expecting. You were expecting a 70s disco hit with the word party in the title which would set up some interminable hack riff where we swapped out the word party from song titles and replaced it with work event to leaden satirical effect. You know, get this work event started, work event hard, work event fears too. 24 hour work event people, it's my work event and I'll cry if I want to. Well, we have chosen at this time to rise nobly above such tawdry japery in recognition of the seriousness of the troubles besetting the Prime Minister and the gravity of the decision about the future leadership of this country now faced by his fellow members of the Parliamentary Conservative Work Event. Anyway... Yes, yes, Warden threw a work event in the county jail, etc. But we are moving on, for we learned that Jailhouse Rock might soon require the addition of many, many more supplementary verses, because the United States is shortly going to have to build more prisons, quite a lot more, if it turns out that Mike Lindell, soft furnishings impresario, and prominent Donald Trump surrogate, is right. We already have all the pieces of the puzzle, and you talk about evidence. We had enough evidence to put everybody in prison for life 300-and-some million people. Uh, wait, we had that all the way back to November, December. Mike Lindell's ambitious plan to incarcerate 300 million, i.e. nearly all of his fellow Americans, for committing the mass voter fraud which deprived his friend and patron Donald Trump of the presidency of the United States, may sound of a piece with several of Lindell's previous interesting, let's go with interesting, claims regarding the legitimacy of the 2020 election. However, we learned, well, more sort of surmised really, that Lindell may be onto something here. Restoring Trump to the White House might well set Lindell up for reward, like a contract for his company, My Pillow to supply bedding to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. A gig which would be well worth having if that many people are bound for the hooskow, the more so when one is, as Lindell is, looking down the barrel of a $1.3 billion lawsuit from one enraged manufacturer of voting machines. So we learned, again, that the overturning of the 2020 US presidential election remains surely just a matter of time, so long as legal minds of the calibre of Trump's outriders stay on the case. (coughs) And… I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire! We learned that the gates of hell are to close and all reasonable people will agree that it is not before time. However, we learned after scrolling beyond the headline that this development is perhaps not as encouraging as it sounds. The gates of hell in this instance are not the mystical portal to the malevolent underworld from which has sprung war, famine, pestilence, death and e-scooters, but a natural gas crater in Turkmenistan. We learned, after embarking on the rigorous research expected by the exacting listeners of these monologues, that the Davaza crater has been ablaze since 1971, when Soviet geologists drilled into the wrong bit of Karakum Desert. <laughs> Doubtless something like that, yes. Since then, the Inferno has become both tourist attraction and propaganda prop. In 2019, Turkmenistan's weirdo president, Gurbanguly Berdy had himself filmed driving around it to dispel persistent rumours that he was dead. But we learned that it is now President Berdy Mokhamedov himself who has decided that the gates of hell must be closed, the fire doused. And yes, we are right now going to embark on a total non sequitur just so we can play that clip again, hopefully so he is less distracted by the desire to pull doughnuts around a blazing cavity and can better concentrate on his wrapping. Everybody on the chorus. amazing it down. Life is so
0: wonderful in
2: For Monocle Twenty Four, I'm Andrew Miller.
0: Thank you very much, Sir Andrew Muller. This is Monocle on Saturday, and still with me is Simon Brooks. Simon, that's rather catchy, that Turkmenistan rap.
3: It is, actually. I, well, I, I was sort of humming itself, and it just <laughs> makes you want to learn some Turkmenistani, or whatever you said, ignorantly, whatever the language is.
0: <laughs> uh, let's talk about another artist who, in fact, we also heard during that piece, and that is the wonderful Elvis Presley. Uh, of course, now long dead, but his, uh, his legacy lives on in Las Vegas, or at least it did. It did. This is really sad, isn't
3: it? Yes, uh, it, apparently, according according to the times um uh, the the uh, the great uh Show that has been one of the one of the many tribute bands, whatever, to um, tribute acts to the King is yeah is, is coming to came to a close uh, last Saturday uh, tragically on
0: what would have been Elvis's eighty seventh birthday.
3: <laughs> apparently, if only lived that long, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so all shook up is a themed production that's run apparently according to the the Times since twenty fourteen at the V Theater in Miracle Mile Shops. <laughs> I love that Miracle Mile Shops, uh, Planet <laughs> Hollywood. But now yes, uh, and and the Jeff. Uh, Sulis who is the um, the great impersonator who apparently has done 10,000 wedding ceremonies dressed up as Elvis. Fantastic. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if only I'd known when I got married. <laughs> exactly. Damn, Escape escaped that one. <laughs> but it's quite interesting this. I mean, it does seem to be that I, I, I'm i sort of reading the piece that it does seem to be a, a lack of Uh, demand rather than supply, unfortunately. I think perhaps Las Vegas is going a bit upmarket or something, complains... And Elvis fans are dying out. Well, I suppose that's it. You know, he is history, isn't he, really? But I think what is wonderful is there's no implication in this that there's a a lack of supply of Elvis impersonators. Because, I mean, isn't that the whole... Point of being an Elvis impersonator, you are nothing like him. You just put on the suit, you wail, you make a complete fool of yourself, or whatever, and you call yourself an Elvis impersonator, and you you uh, you clear up on the uh, on the the drunken post pub party market. So, um,
0: although I think some of them are really talented, aren't they? Aren't they people I'll, that who do it like incredibly well?
3: Well, I'll bow to your judgment on <laughs> that. Just,
0: I, I it's say. not my no, specialist subject.
3: Good. You do surprise me. Yeah, I'm not really an expert, but I have to say, yeah, it's interesting, I suppose, isn't it? Perhaps, um, mind you, we were talking last time I was on the program about sort of uh, the, the the comeback of various sort of TV shows and stuff. So perhaps in a in ten years' time we might be back here talking about the Elvis comeback or whatever, and suddenly uh, huge uh, interest in Elvis impersonators and what was this strange sort of uh, sociological phenomenon uh, that that seemed to have died out in the early twenty twenties and actually came back with a rush in twenty thirty something or yeah, other.
0: Absolutely, uh, Simon. Thank you very much. We've, we're going to have to leave it there. Many thanks to our studio. Engineer David Stevens and our producer Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin. This show, Monocle on Saturday, will return at the same time next week. But I think we've got to give the final word to the person we were just talking about. Here he is, Elvis Presley and all shook up. I'm I'm all shook up.
3: seem to stand on my own two feet who do you think oh when you have such luck i'm in love